Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Alex Cathcart, Portfolio Manager at Drummond Capital Partners. Welcome, Alex. Hi. Morning. So I thought, you know, a great place to start with you, given your background in, in asset allocation and portfolio design, is to sort of talk about where we are in the market um, today, where we where there's some real questions around prices being disconnected from the economic reality. Um, firstly, what are your thoughts on on sort of that backdrop? We don't think they're necessarily disconnected. Like the, the market rally has obviously been exceptional. So was the sell-off, um, notwithstanding the correction last week. But we think there's a few things um, that explain the rally we've had. Um, so the first one that, that matters probably the most is just the relaxation of lockdown um, across the world, starting from around late April. Um, it should lead to a relatively sharp recovery in growth, so growth that will look like a V, um, and markets like growth, markets are forward-looking. Uh, so to the extent that uh, earnings in six months' time, 12 months' time, 18 months' time are higher than they will likely be in the June quarter 2020, um, that's quite favourable for markets. Something else for us that makes a big difference is, uh, I think, a capitulation in expectations for higher interest rates. So everyone's discounting assets based off risk-free rates. I can't imagine many people are thinking risk-free rates are going to rise meaningfully um, in the short to medium term and potentially not the long term either. That makes equities look more attractive on a relative basis. Uh, the other thing that's quite um, meaningful is liquidity provision uh, from, from central banks and stimulus from governments around the world. Uh, this isn't uh, the GFC, I don't think people think the financial system is going to implode here. This is an exogenous shock uh, where demand was artificially suppressed by governments, rightfully so, to uh, try and prevent the spread of COVID-19 to the extent the relaxation of those restrictions supported by um, liquidity provision, which prevents a systemic shock through uh, the global economy. Uh, that That's a relatively short-term thing and it's you can see light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So let's let's maybe pick up on on one particular point. You talked about sort of the liquidity provisions from the central bank, and it's not just the US, but but globally, we're just seeing huge amounts of liquidity come into markets. How important is is liquidity when you start to think about either your strategic asset allocation and sort of long term expected returns for for asset classes versus maybe even your TAA? We think about it quite differently between the two. From a from a TAA perspective. I think if you got the Fed right post GFC, you would have got asset allocation right through that period. And there's a lot of market commentators who complain that um, the the whole uh, economy is driven by Fed liquidity, and to some extent it is, and I think to a large extent it is. But that's that's the world we exist in, and you have to invest in the world you exist in, not the world that you think is morally right. Um, So to the extent that liquidity provision has been exceptionally large, um, that's been positive for markets and we uh, part of our TAA process is actually looking at whether the policy stance is favourable or um, not favourable and we make active asset allocation decisions based on that. From the SAA perspective, it's a a bit different. So we take a scenario 
or this year we have taken a scenario-based approach to constructing our SAA and we're thinking about um, how the current world plays out over a longer-term horizon. In that respect, we're talking about um, does the current coordinated monetary and fiscal stimulus morph into something resembling MMT or helicopter money or uh, some combination, some coordinated um, approach of the two leading to potentially you know, seven years plus out, but still in our long-term investment horizon, some spike in inflation, um, which no portfolio is really uh, constructed against at the moment. Um, or do we go the other way and um, follow Japan into deflation? Um, or do we just have a repeat of the last 10 years where you've just had very low interest rates, inflation below targets, um, but still reasonable earnings growth, um, which these equities have performed. So we think that it's quite, it, it almost feels um, uh, trinary, the, the way the world could play out. And so we're trying to construct our SAA uh, to diversify against those three potential outcomes. So let's talk about the the SAA more specifically. You know, how do you think about an, an SAA in terms of asset class? Is it a total portfolio approach? You know, what what are the the characteristics that that make up the SAA? So it's a, it's a risk factor approach, which I guess you could also call a total portfolio approach. Where we're thinking about what are the risks um, in the SAA. So you have obviously equity restoration risk, credit risk, etc. Um, but we we we're trying to build the portfolio based on a foundation. Of uncertainty, which I guess it sounds bad, but what we're trying to do is build a portfolio that's robust to many outcomes. So we have obviously the scenario-based approach to constructing capital market assumptions, which is hopefully embedding robustness across that um, dimension. We also do a lot of stochastic modelling around portfolio returns, trying to uh, look at how correlations might um, break or uh, resolve to something differently, see what the um, final endpoint Value, uh, valuations of a portfolio are likely to be, sorry, uh, of a, a dollar invested, um, trying to look at how to trim drawdown risk. So there's a lot of um, trying to, na- if you're familiar with a fan chart, trying to narrow the fan chart um, and keep portfolio outcomes relatively tight and aligned to objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of a lot of funds, yeah, particularly in the industry fund space, have sort of looked to um, infrastructure and some of the private assets as part of the way to sort of you know, find assets that are quote unquote uncorrelated. What are your thoughts on on that? So we uh, here we don't invest in liquid assets just because of the way we invest, which is through managed account structures. I, I don't think there's anything not wrong necessarily with investing um, large chunks of the portfolio in liquid assets, certainly from a liability. Hedging perspective infrastructure makes a lot of sense for a superannuation fund. Although I think there is, and it's probably become quite evident now, there's a lot of idiosyncratic risk embedded in a lot of these assets. So very comfortable holding an equities portfolio, say 50% of um, a growth option. It's invested across 3,000 securities at a relatively low wage in each. Um, suddenly you have an infrastructure portfolio that's 10 to 20 assets, half a percent to 1% each, uh, yeah, a quarter of that is airports. And suddenly um, you have this idiosyncratic risk up here, which um, is hard to quantify uh, ex ante, uh, but you don't have that issue when you're investing in um, a big pool of listed uh, securities that are, that are all sort of a lot more diversified just purely because you have 
so many more of them in the portfolio than you do unlisted assets. So to the extent that they're, they're, they provide diversification, they do because they're valued monthly or quarterly. Uh, but I, I think from an underlying risk perspective, I don't think that owning 4% of Melbourne Airport is uh, different to owning 4% of Sydney Airport. It's just one looks uh, like it has less volatility than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you can always get to the point where you have uh, diversification that is actually making it worse because you end up with the same exposures that, that are stuck there. So I, I want to oh, go. I was going to say, yeah, for sure. And there's there's obviously, um, this that's not even accounting for the illiquidity of these assets, which limits flexibility and asset allocation. So, yeah. Let's move to another piece to that puzzle as we think about an SAA or this total portfolio approach. You know, a lot of funds are now starting to look at alternatives as, as another approach. Some parts of the alternative space hasn't done so well. Um, some of these CTA style products haven't done well. You know, do you guys use alternatives and, and how do you use them? We do use alternatives. Um, we use them in the defensive and the growth side of the portfolio. The addition of them to the defensive side of the portfolio is a new um, a new sort of innovation as part of this SAO. Uh, there, there's a reason for that, and that's the bond yields are everywhere incredibly low. Um, and we don't have as high conviction as we would have done five, ten years ago. The bond yields can rally meaningfully in a, um, a significant equity market drawdown. And I think that's that's a mechanical reality unless uh, the, the zero lower bound issue gets resolved um, with cash rates, which may happen. Um, and if it does, we'll be prepared to probably add a lot more bonds to the portfolio. Uh, but the the defensive side of the portfolio, we're just looking for things that uh, diversify against equity risk um, and also potentially inflation risk because one of our scenarios is inflation. Um, the sorts of assets we're looking at, uh, sort of the sorts of uh, investments we're looking at in this space are things like CTAs, are things like um, very low volatility market neutral funds, um, but there there is an issue of um, market structure potentially with uh, with some of these alternatives, and that's the the last two corrections um, bear markets that we've had, so December eighteen and, and the most recent, uh, probably happened too quickly for uh, investment structures like CTAs to actually capture. Um, and uh, benefit from from the market drawdown. So we have to make a determination as to whether we think big drawdowns in the future uh, will be protracted like the TNT bubble or the GFC um, or more sort of 80, uh, black, uh, 87 um, COVID-style drawdowns. In the, the net choice we made is we basically think there's probably a reasonable chance of both. Um, so that means there there probably is a that there is a place in the portfolio for those sort of alternatives. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you, you talk about market structure and fragility um, that's there. I'm curious on your thoughts. You know, as a number of asset owners, not just from the small um, players, but to the large sort of uh, pension funds and super funds that also get involved with a lot of systematic style modelling um, and and have you know specific risk targets. How much do you feel that that sort of market fragility is based on the fact that everyone is using sort of the same sorts of types of of modelling and 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 sort of the same approaches to risk as well? Yeah, I think it's it certainly um, matters. Uh, I I doubt there'd be a DAA or TAA process in an institutional um, pension fund or or sovereign wealth fund that doesn't have say multi asset momentum as part of their process. Um, 
uh, potentially over a longer term valuations, although they don't make much of a difference over a shorter term. So the way, the way people think about this, um, there's not that many um, sort of truly bespoke ways to do it. There's things that have worked historically in the past and chances are they've been embedded into people's processes um, and hence they're going to influence outcomes in the future. I think a big, rather than the sovereign wealth pension fund sort of um, no leverage space, the bigger issue is potentially um, sort of vol-targeted funds that have a lot more notional exposure uh, and that dramatically reduce notional exposure when volatility spikes. Obviously, that um, leads to market um, liquidity crunches and the, the absence of um, bank balance sheets to provide a buffer in that space is obviously less post-GFC and the regulation that, that followed. Um, there's potentially, you would think in that in that environment, there's a role for big, big funds to actually play um, uh, like play a role as a provider of liquidity, and I think some are actually doing that. But the, the terms of in terms of market structure and, and liquidity, it, it certainly feels like um, there's a lot more crowding in terms of um, uh, market sell-off. Mm-hmm. Let's stick on this this whole systematic approach because a lot of funds use a, you know some sort of a systematic process that that also follows into or flows into their investment process. You know, how do, how do you think about sort of the investment process, you know, particularly from a governance standpoint, you want to make sure that it's robust and, and can be replicable, you know, through time. But how do you also sort of look at that and understand that the market maybe is changing, you know, the macroeconomic um, background, the regime is changing? How do you sort of map those two together? I think so for, for us, we have a we have systematic elements to our process and our process is systematic in the sense that we look at the same things. Um, and it's systematic in the sense that parts of it are automated so we don't have to spend time updating things. Um, but it's not purely systematic in the sense that it's a set and a forget black box model. So I think there's a, I think that the sweet spot for asset allocation is some, some incorporation of qualitative and quantitative aspects to the process. So there's going to be quantitative things that have worked well historically and, and you cross your fingers and hope that they'll work well in the future. And there's qualitative um, aspects where you're trying to think about um, how the way uh, the way the world is changing. Are we entering a new regime? What are the chances that the, the systematic or quantitative aspects aren't likely to work as well in the future as in the past? Um, so I think that the combination of those two things is, for us anyway, the sweet spot there. Would you also say that there's a bit of a, a judgment overlay that maybe sits on top of some of this modelling? Yeah, so we have a um, – there's, there's for us, there's a final judgment overlay in the team. So we have a TAA process, or we call it TA, TADA. I don't see the large distinction between the two. Uh, but we have a TAA process that is that has a lot of quantitative inputs um, that produce effectively a score, which is um, – sort of suggests where we should be allocated from a risk budgeting perspective but there is a there is a judgment at the end of that and there's also qualitative aspects that go into that scorecard but the ju- final judgment makes a lot of sense because you really want to m- consider uh, like why why the thing is actually telling you what it is telling you um, so the judgment element looks at that and says well it, we know the inputs to this so you should know the output uh, based on uh, sort of a heuristic assessment and you want to make sure um, that it's consistent with what you're actually thinking and 99% of the time it isn't, uh, it is, and if it isn't, that leads you to do research and think about things in more detail. We also have um, a quite um, 
uh, robust investment committee process where our investment committee uh, are all sort of independent experts in investment, asset allocation, uh, risk, et cetera. Um, and they provide a good oversight uh, and judgment um, overlay to our process as well. So although the decision-making is delegated to the investment team, the investment committee um, are involved in the sense that they can um, ask us why we're doing things, make sure there's consistency between our process and our actions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we talked a little bit about sort of the liquidity provisions from central banks. And the other piece that I guess is becoming more and more prominent is sort of this sentiment, um, particularly from retail traders that, are, that are seem to be pushing markets. You know, how do you sort of maybe take into consideration that sentiment that's out there and, um, you know, thinking about the risks that also come alongside some of the movements that we've seen of late? It's hard to distinguish the the true extent to which retail has actually driven the rally. You look at so there's positioning surveys that suggest that it was it was underbought by institutional investors. Um, although those they're all they're always qualitative surveys, so it's hard to actually know what was going on. Uh, there's definitely some weird stuff happening in in specific securities. So you can follow Robin Track and see where the the um, Robinhood investors are, are throwing their their money. Um, but I don't know, like I'm as concerned about uh, them as I am about, um, say, uh, Bridgewater or AQR de-risking a risk parity fund because volati- like bond volatility spikes. I think there's the, the point of, it, it's good from the perspective of an asset allocator that there's other people out there doing things that aren't following the exact same investment process that you are. If the world was just purely long only passive, um, I think that the, the opportunity to add value through active asset allocation would be a lot less. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually an interesting transition. And, and we, we, you know, I think the next place to talk to is sort of this passive versus active style of approach. You know, how do you think about it? And maybe where do you specifically, you know, maybe look for more active managers to, to play and versus, you know, different parts of the portfolio where you just feel a passive exposure is, is uh, appropriate? We try and keep um, fees reasonable at the portfolio level. So, so to start, like straight away, that creates a, um, a fee budget that we have to allocate across the different areas. For us, um, most of that fee budget goes to global equities managers. So for, from our perspective, the, the managers that we've invested in have delivered more alpha than, say, um, like a bond, um, active bond manager has. So that's our preference. And then we're more passive on the sort of, we're more passive on the bond side of the portfolio than the than in the credit side of the portfolio. Um, mm-hmm. And and are there particular sort of geographical regions that that you look for as you start to sort of you know I'm I'm trying to think about from a top down perspective as you as you look at these risk factors you know how do you make sure that these risk factors are diversifying um, and also providing the returns that you you expect. So we we're not. So diversification of risk, like say, say equity risk factors, isn't necessarily our starting point. Um, we we like growth managers um, and have since the sort of the fund started. So we have a lot more growth or anti-value um, the value managers in the portfolio, uh, which has obviously worked well recently. Um, and that's one of those things you think about: uh, is there a structural change that means value uh, is dead? Um, AQR make a really good case that it isn't, and they're probably going to be right in the long term. Uh, but there's there's a sec- there's certainly a secular trend in the type of companies that end up in the, the growth bucket uh, that doesn't really seem absent some big 
regulatory shift um, doesn't really seem likely to abate at any time soon. So we're happy to have like a, a certainly an anti-value tilt um, and that leads to a US tilt in the portfolio and the equity um, asset class. Mm-hmm. So the, the next thing you sort of talked about sort of inflationary issues as potentially a problem. You've now mentioned regulation as another issue. What other sort of longer term thematics sort of uh, uh, maybe you know, in the portfolio being thought about in terms of different scenarios or will, you know, likely to come up um, going forward? I think the, the big one is inflation versus deflation. That's a that's a real, because that, that, that leads itself to changes in an SAA rather than tactical changes. But most portfolios, so 70, 30, 60, 40 portfolios set up and gained popularity once inflation was largely under control and declining for, for many years. So if we have a period of um, potentially not the inflation we saw in the 70s, but just a period of higher inflation, there's things that people don't tend to have in their portfolios, so commodities, gold, uh, that um, that would play a role if we thought that was the central case and would embed into the portfolio. And you probably have a lot less um, government bonds structurally in that world as well. So that, that's that's a big thematic that we spend a fair bit of time thinking of and try and build um, defence against effectively in the SAA design process. Uh, the other thematics, there's other, there's always things to worry about, and for thematics, you're always thinking about things to worry about. China and the US tensions um, is something uh, that seems like it's now going to be embedded uh, structurally for for a very long time. So. Um, whether it's a new Cold War or not, it's probably too soon to say, but there's certainly um, bipartisan consensus within the US uh, that China should be seen as a strategic uh, adversary rather than um, a country which um, they can cooperate with. So there's, uh, we, history hasn't had a, um, a lot of great experience with two superpowers with um, diametrically opposed ideologies cooperating well together. So I think that's going to be interesting from an investments perspective because the role of China within portfolios is probably dramatically underrepresented relative to the size of its economy. Um, and through time, most funds, I think, are thinking about how do they access China, particularly in a more meaningful way. Uh, this strategic um, relationship between the two countries sort of suggest, makes you wonder, should that actually be the case and should people think about having um, potentially less China exposure in their portfolios? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, that's a, that's a question we will definitely not be able to answer today. Look, the China thing <laughs> is very interesting as, you know, people want to get exposure to the growth and the changing nature inside the country. One way that a number of funds have sort of tried to do that is the periphery through EM. You know, what, yeah. what's your thoughts on on maybe EM um, as, a, as an alternative? So we have, like I'd say, most other multi-asset funds, um, more EM than market cap, less EM than GDP weighting. Uh, it is a, like it is a thematic that uh, is in like that, that seems like a really good idea. It's where the growth is. They're the only region with positive real interest rates, uh, but they've just they've failed to deliver returns for such a long time. Uh, so we we have more than the market cap in the hope that they can actually start to generate um, investment outcomes, uh, but we we're conscious that uh, that's a that's a yet to be evidenced. Um, and there's obviously like governance issues. So EM governance is 
problematic uh, is unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. Um, often the good museum stories are when you have a strong leader emerge who sort of promises reform, but it's not institutional, it's not change in institutional governance. It's it's you have a, a Modi appear and suddenly India looks a lot better. Um, and if Modi is not there, it, does India stay um, good? I don't know. Um, so there's that, that, that's potentially a problem. Um, you can also access EM through uh, DM companies, which is obviously a uh, strategy that's pretty well trodden, um, but the share of revenues going to uh, the source from EM into large DM companies has grown a lot and it's probably likely to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. A related issue to EM, but but I got in DM is currency and currency exposure. Um, I guess with with central banks all around the world running their own little campaigns and and also governments with their fiscal policy, you know, we're seeing volatility maybe suppressed to some degree in some of the financial markets, but we're seeing some quite large movements in currency. You know how how does currency sort of play into the portfolio, not just from EM but even from a DM perspective? Yeah, we we. We like, well, so from the perspective of, of an Australian dollar-based investor, we have the, the great advantage of having a, a currency that um, when you don't own it is relatively diversifying against equity risk. So we have uh, quite a bit of foreign currency structurally in the portfolio um, as and hopefully uh, that, that provides some diversification in the future even if bonds don't. Um, EM currencies, uh, interesting. Um, uh, often you think if there is a positive a reform story or a positive EM story, you could invest in the EM currency and not so much worry about the, the equity market. Um, so we have we don't hedge our EM um, equities exposure. So we're trying to, I guess, get the benefit of the currency appreciation and the, and the, the underlying um, market appreciation as well. So I think that's um, yeah, that's how we think about currency. We're also active with the currency as well. So um, as um, there's probably the biggest risk in the portfolio after equities. Uh, we we have a process to sort of tilt in and out of foreign currency exposure. Mm-hmm. Let's take it a little bit closer to home and maybe some of your past career at, at both CBUS and QSuper. You've worked for a couple of industry funds. You know now um, you know working for Drummond. How how's the process different in terms of sort of building a portfolio where you are now versus your previous experience? The, so there's there's a couple of differences that are that are mechanical. So one of which is because we invest via managed accounts, um, there's no derivatives in our portfolio, so we have to buy and sell with funds or ETFs or securities. Uh, so that that's a little bit different. It means we have to be a bit more cautious um, when trading because the, obviously the transaction costs are higher. Um, there's difference in the sense that uh, the 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 problem is the same. So investment is about problem solving and the problem we're trying to solve is the same problem as we're trying to solve at QSuper and CBUS. Um, but there's probably uh, less other things uh, here. So there's, it's quite a small team or a boutique. Um, so there's there's not really any peripheral um, uh, things going on. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to say it in a pejorative sense, but I certainly have a lot less meetings now than I used to. Um, so there's, there's, it's a, uh, I guess, a more streamlined um, investment process, I'd say that. Does, that. does that allow, do you think, for much more sort of fluid decision-making? Are you allowed to sort of have more decision, you know, investment committee decisions more frequently? Um, you know, how, oh, how do you think? Yeah. It's quite so. It's there was both at CBUS and and Q Super. There's delegations were um, 
pushed down through the investments team. So you weren't necessarily re reliant on an investment committee schedule to make asset allocation decisions. Um, but just by nature of having fewer people to talk to things about, um, things move quite a lot quicker um, than, than they, they do elsewhere. And that's probably to be expected. Um, the, the governance around um, super funds is uh, are different to the governance in a fund manager. Well, how, how would you also say that your portfolio would differ from, say, a traditional balance fund portfolio that you would see at, a, at, at any industry super fund? Uh, we carry, so our, our balance, we don't call it balance, but we'd say a balance fund for us holds less equity risk than, than a super fund. So the, the way um, super funds work is you kind of think about what uh, rating category you want to be in, and that's the that's your sort of equity risk bounds. Uh, because the end investors here um, are financial uh, intermediaries, we have to be, we are a little bit, um, uh, let's say, cleaner about the way we uh, think about net equity risk in the portfolio. So our, our uh, growth equivalent of a growth portfolio has about 70% equity risk in it, which is uh, probably at the low end of what the industry super fund world would have, obviously not counting Q Super in that mix because they have a very different investment strategy. Um, so that that's probably a difference um, difference there. Yeah, because well, one of the things that's interesting is that there has always been questions around sort of, you know, the 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 current structure of sort of a balanced or growth portfolio that's set there and it you know, doesn't move so much but doesn't allow for this nimbleness to actually sort of make some more of these active returns um, because of their size and also because of the PDS that they've sort of put forward and also yeah. peer risk is another problem. Yeah. So we don't really have a peer risk problem, which is nice. Um, we, we have ranges that we operate in from a DAA or TAA perspective. So we, uh, for the, um, for the, strategic series which is what the, the equivalent of the industry funds and um, retail super funds would be we're plus or minus 10 percent equity risk is effectively our bounds and we're, we actually use those ranges um, so we were pretty close to maximum underweight equities through the COVID drawdown um, and subsequently added back so it's it's quite active in that sense and we also have a goals based portfolio um, which sits separately to that. And that portfolio doesn't have an SAA um, and it has incredibly wide ranges. So plus or minus 40% um, equity risk from a starting point of roughly 50, 50 equities and bonds. Um, so that portfolio is, as you would imagine, extremely uh, active. It's been as high as sort of 80% equity risk and as low as 20% equity risk in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's some very big numbers. I guess one of the next questions that sort of comes to my head is how do you then communicate that to your members, you know, and, and investors ultimately? Yeah. yeah. Um, so proactive communication is a big thing. And that's also one of the, um, the, the advantages of a managed account structure is the end investor has the beneficial ownership of the funds that we actually invest in. So they see the changes as we make them. Um, because of that, it's important for us to actually communicate what we're doing and we do that. So we write you know, monthly pieces about um, you know, the, the market outlook and, and like various related things. And every time we make a change, we communicate why that change is being made. Uh, so we're trying to... Uh, is the, the financial intermediaries, so that the planning groups, family offices, et cetera, are the ones who um, are our immediate clients and obviously their investors are our end clients. Um, we're about empowering them to talk to their clients 
about the changes that are actually being made to their portfolios. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. And I think we we do it in a way that is hopefully interesting for people to read as well. Mm-hmm. So last question, and, and that's a, a, a tricky one at the same time, is you know we're, we're coming up to a market that's still you know, there, there's still some concerns and volatility that sits behind it. A number of people are starting to to re-engage with their their funds, particularly their retirement options and worried about sort of sequencing risk. You know, how do you sort of maybe give people comfort to to stay the course, um, you know, when there is these volatility sort of spikes and, and um, the ability to sort of have enough money for their, for their you know, their retirement effectively? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing there is probably trust. So for, for us, the, the, to the extent that the um, the, the individuals invested in, in the structures trust their planners and the, the planning groups trust us, uh, that takes a lot of the, the heat out of that. Um, so I think trust and, and clarity of communication is probably the biggest um, help in that space. I think there's also um, this communi- there's a communication challenge around longevity and sequencing risk. Um, I think a lot of the work the industry funds have done has shown that um, most people uh, die with assets. Um, so rather than, uh, so the, the issue is not so much that they run out, it's that they have too much left. Uh, so that there's that, um, that that challenge as well. You need to actually get the, the retirees enjoying their retirement and spending their money rather than worrying um, that they're not going to have enough. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Alex. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.